0: Meet Amanda. She's one of those super organized people who's kind of obsessed with planning.
1: Different pens for different checklists, different colors. Were you always like this? Yes. Yes. I've always been this way.
0: (laughs) Did you like color code your binders?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's how you keep them
0: organized. Sound familiar? You might be listening to this and thinking, wow, that actually sounds pretty normal. Don't worry, you're not alone. There's an overabundance of us type A personalities, maybe borderline neurotic, in medical fields. Amanda is a nurse practitioner, and so she fits the mold. But even a top-notch organizational
1: system like Amanda's has a way of breaking down sometimes. I like the organization, but not in this scenario. I didn't have any control. I cannot I cannot think of any other situation that even comes close to what happened in the pregnancy. So what happened to
0: Amanda during her pregnancy? Welcome to The Push. This is a pregnancy neurology podcast. Today's episode, we're reviewing secondary causes of headache in pregnancy, and specifically, elevated intracranial pressure. When is a headache more than just a headache? And how does high pressure in the head affect the labor and delivery plan? We have experts lined up, so stay tuned. And I'll tell you right now, Amanda turns out fine in the end, but her pregnancy story, it gets a little rocky. She's 26 years old, this is her first pregnancy, and early into the second trimester, she starts to get these nagging headaches.
1: I started with a headache that was in the back of my head, a pounding headache that was worse in the morning and not relieved by any type of medication. So you're probably thinking so far,
0: migraines, right? Well, that's what Amanda thought too. In fact, most headaches in pregnancy are either migraine or tension-type headaches. If you want to learn more about migraines, go back and listen to our migraine and pregnancy episode. But these do not turn out to be migraines because the other thing about Amanda... She's really not a headache person. In other words, these headaches are brand new. Within a few weeks, they're becoming more frequent and more painful. They start waking her up from sleep early in the morning, and they're worse lying down than standing up. And then Amanda gets a new symptom.
1: I experienced five to ten seconds of um, just pure blackness, but the vision would return.
0: That's when Amanda decides to mention it to her OB. I
1: went to my OB, and was advised by her and my PCP to go to the emergency room. Um, when I arrived there, they did some imaging, and they wanted to do a spinal tap, which I refused. <laughs> Why did you refuse a spinal tap? (laughs) Terror. I was afraid. I was terrified. Is it because we call it a spinal tap? Maybe, maybe. And I didn't really think it was serious enough to warrant that because it was just a headache. And I felt silly going to the hospital for just a headache. I ended up leaving against medical advice. (laughs) And wait, and what do you do for work again? (laughs) Nurse practitioner.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So now Amanda, the NP, ends up leaving the ER against medical advice. And this is because all the while she's thinking, this headache is probably no big deal. So is this a kind of headache to worry about? And how can you tell which headaches you should worry about and which ones are just headache? In other words, are Amanda's doctors overreacting? I spoke with Dr. Naharika Mehta. She's an obstetrical medicine specialist at Women and Infants Hospital. We talked about the headache symptoms.
2: When I'm talking to residents to uh, decide if they need to image a, a patient or not, I teach them a mnemonic called
0: SNOOP. Okay, I'm curious, what does SNOOP stand for? Let's go through this acronym letter by letter. First, the S.
2: S for systemic signs and
0: symptoms, if the
2: patient has fever or has HIV or cancer or something. And N. N is for any associated neurologic uh, symptoms uh, the patient has, like weakness.
0: Next, the O and the other O.
2: The first O is for onset, if it was abrupt onset of sudden severe headache. The second O is for an older patient. And finally, the P. And the last P is for previous headache, if the patient has had a prior history of headaches, and this current episode is something different from what they
0: have previously experienced. P can also stand for positional. Any one of these letters can help you determine that your patient does need neuroimaging. And the best part about SNOOP, it relies on your history and not your exam. You can even go through the SNOOP acronym over the phone if you're on call to figure out whether you need to send a patient you don't know to the hospital for neuroimaging. So to answer the question, was Amanda right?
1: Because it was just a headache, and I felt silly going to the hospital.
0: Nah, she's wrong. It was that serious. Amanda here gets an N for neurological symptoms, that's the vision, and a P. She had no prior history of headaches. Her headaches are also positional, worse lying down than sitting or standing. To a neurologist, the other headache red flags we talk about are headaches that worsen with Valsalva or bending over, and headaches that wake you from sleep at night. Amanda has those symptoms too. In other words, Amanda meets a lot of criteria here, and so her doctors are absolutely right to order neuroimaging. So far, Amanda's screened in positive for Snoop. So how do her doctors decide which neuroimaging to get? In other words, CT or MRI? Well, in pregnancy, it boils down to timing. How acute is the headache? As a rule of thumb, if you can afford to wait to find out what's causing your patient's symptoms, for example, the headaches have been going on a few weeks, go for a non-contrast MRI, MRA, and MRV. On the other hand, if the headache is really acute, I mean hours to days, you go for the quickest test, and that's the head CT. Remember, you're scanning the head, so even though the CT uses radiation and there is some risk, that radiation is far enough away from the woman's uterus. And in an emergency, the risk of missing a life-threatening diagnosis would be way higher than the risks associated with radiation. It's not a perfect picture of the brain parenchyma, but it can rule out the major things. Got it? Okay, let's get back to Amanda. She's had headaches a few weeks, so she waits a few hours in the ER and eventually gets an MRI that's pretty normal. There's no tumor, no clot, and no hydrocephalus. So why on earth did her doctors want her to have a spinal tap? Well, here's why.
1: I was told in the hospital that I had papilledema. What is papilledema? So it's a swelling of the optic nerve because of the increased pressure.
0: Papilledema on eye exam means high pressure in the head, otherwise known as elevated intracranial pressure or elevated ICP. This was at the root of the headaches. But why was the ICP high? Time to call on our experts. My name is Petra Klinger, and I'm a neurosurgeon. Dr. Klinger... Works at Rhode Island Hospital and actually specializes in disorders
3: of the cerebrospinal fluid. So I asked
0: her, "What are the components of ICP?"
3: Various elements in our skull, blood, the brain matter, and cerebrospinal fluid can all comprise the intracranial pressure.
0: Okay. So what can make that pressure go high?
3: An increase in intracranial pressure can come from increasing the amount of blood or increasing the amount of brain matter. For example, if there's a tumor growing in the brain or an increased amount of fluid, which would be, for example, hydrocephalus.
0: These disorders are not necessarily more common in pregnancy, but could they get worse?
3: We do know that with the progressing uh, pregnancy, there is increased abdominal pressure and that increases the venous pressure and that can increase the intracranial pressure because our intracranial pressure is alleviated by the veins draining out. The second problem in pregnancy is that due to hormonal change there's also more volume that also can increase intracranial pressure. So basically um, the concern is that with pregnancy pre-existing conditions can get worse.
0: Now at this point I need to tell you something important. The cause of the elevated ICP matters. If there is a blockage of flow of the cerebrospinal fluid that could be a tumor or mass of any kind in the posterior fossa or obstructive hydrocephalus. you would never want to do a spinal tap on these patients or even spinal anesthesia because you could create a pressure vacuum and the brain could herniate downward. Also, if there's any concern for high pressure in the head and you don't know the cause, you always want to do neuroimaging before you even think about spinal tap or anesthesia. Got it? Remember, Amanda had a normal MRI, so she had no blockage, but she did have papilledema. So what was the cause of the high pressure? Well, it turns out there's this other thing that can happen which ends up causing high ICP and not from a blockage. And this is the condition that Amanda ends up having. Idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Idiopathic intracranial hypertension, or IIH, is also known as pseudotumor cerebri. Now, we don't know the cause of this condition, but it's either overproduction or underabsorption of cerebrospinal fluid. Pseudotumor presents with everything Amanda had, positional headaches, visual changes, papilledema. Sometimes patients can get pulsatile tinnitus, but the neuroimaging shows no mass, no clot, and no obstruction. The major risk with pseudotumor has to do with the vision.
3: I think amongst all uh, diseases that are uh, associated with increased intracranial pressure, pseudotumor is probably the most Um, concerning because we are talking here about vision loss. We are talking about the potential of blindness. So here you have to be more thorough.
0: In other words, that temporary vision loss Amanda was experiencing, that could become a more permanent thing if you don't diagnose and treat pseudotumor. To make the diagnosis, you generally have to do a spinal tap, lying down with the legs extended, and measure an opening pressure. Any opening pressure over 25 centimeters of water would be abnormal. And here's the thing. Not only is a spinal tap safe in these patients, because remember, there's no obstruction. It's actually considered a treatment for this condition. If you remove spinal fluid, the symptoms themselves can get better. This is where we left Amanda. She's
1: fleeing from the emergency room. Terror. I was afraid. I was terrified. And
0: I end up meeting her in the office, and I try to talk her into a spinal tap. But we talk about her terror, and we decide she probably has pseudotumor anyway, even without the spinal tap. So collectively, we decide to skip the spinal tap and instead treat her with a medicine. How do you treat pseudotumor? You use acetazolamide, which is also known as Diamox. It's category C in pregnancy, but we do use it.
1: Well, the Diamox is a wretched medication, so...
0: (laughs) Yes, there are side effects, tingling in the hands, the face, sometimes muscle cramping if you don't stay hydrated, and it can also cause kidney stones. But on the plus side, Um, It did keep the headaches under control completely. So the headaches are better, and the vision is better. Amanda is happy. She goes to the eye doctor for visual field testing, and we track her vision through the pregnancy. There are a few more things you need to know about pseudotumor. Outside of pregnancy, pseudotumor can be associated with underlying obesity, endocrine disorders like hypothyroidism, excessive vitamin A, and certain antibiotics like tetracycline. Now, Amanda has none of these risk factors, and she's not overweight, but she is pregnant. Pseudotumor occurs in roughly 1 to 20 out of every 100,000 women in general. And in pregnancy, the prevalence is between 2 and 12%. And it's hard to say if pregnancy itself is a risk factor or just the weight gain and the increased circulatory volume that puts these women at risk. Now, in non-pregnant women, there are procedures you can do if the symptoms don't improve with acetazolamide. And some of those options include ventricular-peritoneal shunting or cerebral venous stenting, But Dr. Klinga advises, avoiding those procedures if you can in pregnant women because the process is self-limited. We usually stick to acetazolamide, get the visual field testing, and if the pressure goes up, repeat the spinal tap. And as for Amanda, she actually does really well. That is, until the third trimester when things start to take a turn for the worse.
1: I woke up on a Friday and I thought that my house was on fire because everything was cloudy. And my husband couldn't see the cloudiness. And then I went outside and things were still cloudy and blurry.
0: For the record, we did try increasing the Diamox at this point, but it doesn't work. Her vision's terrible and the headaches are back. At this point, Amanda needs that spinal tap to take off some of the fluid and treat her condition. But we're going to hold that thought for a moment and leave Amanda hanging, anxiously waiting for that spinal tap. Because with high pressure in the head, there's something else we need to talk about sooner rather than later. And that is... How are we going to get that baby out?
1: I was concerned about whether or not I should be pushing and um, or whether or not I should have a C-section. Should we
0: be concerned about labor and delivery methods in patients with pseudotumor? Dr. Klinga says yes.
3: If it comes to delivery, you know, pressure and pushing can put you at risk of having episodes of severely increased pressure that can put you at risk of worsening of the disease. And pseudotumor therapy is one of the classical examples where you fear that the vision is deteriorating with pressure exerted during labor. So for the big
0: question, can Amanda push? The answer, according to Dr. Klinger, no. At least not if she's symptomatic. But if she's asymptomatic, the answer would be different.
3: If, for example, the visual acuity is pretty stable and well-controlled, you could still have a, a vaginal delivery.
0: In other words... It's the patient's symptoms themselves around the time of labor and delivery that ultimately determines the labor and delivery plan. And pain itself can contribute to elevated ICP, so controlling the head pain is also very important. In symptomatic patients, the anesthesiologist in labor and delivery can actually help you out.
3: Sometimes anesthesiologists, they do a combined intradural tapping and then uh, epidural anesthesia at the same time, you know, close to the delivery in order to get an instant and immediate alleviation of the pressure.
0: So what does that mean for Amanda? If she can't push, does she automatically need a C-section? To answer this question, I spoke with another expert. Dr. Erica Werner is a maternal fetal medicine specialist at Women and Infants Hospital, she agrees with Dr. Klinga. High pressure in the head is a pretty big deal.
2: The safest way to control cerebral pressure at the time of delivery is to minimize pain and minimize changes in cerebral pressure. So that means usually you need regional anesthesia to minimize the pain. Um, but also with a C-section, there's actually a greater change in cerebral pressure as opposed to with a vaginal delivery. So we tend to steer women towards uh, well-controlled vaginal delivery, which is a hard thing to achieve. but that's That's the goal.
0: How do you do a well-controlled vaginal (laughs) delivery?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Um, So... It, it really involves our anesthesia colleagues placing an early epidural often these patients will come in for an induction and before we even start that induction the anesthesiologist will place an epidural under a very controlled circumstance um, and then it's titrating up their epidural to minimize the patient's pain uh, and then when it comes to the second stage of labor when somebody's fully dilated we let the baby really passively descend in the birth canal uh, and then when the baby is sort of near the outside we can uh, use either forceps or vacuum. My preference tends to be forceps, so little spoons around the baby's head. And we help guide the baby out with the mom doing minimal pushing because Valsalva, um, which is equivalent to what pushing is, increases the intracranial pressure.
0: So a vaginal delivery, in other words, without the push, does it work?
2: <laughs> <laughs> it does. I mean, I've had, I've had lots of, of wonderful, what we call passive second stage, which just means helping the baby come out with forceps or vacuum.
0: And to remind you, we're talking specifically about pseudotumor here, because other causes of elevated ICP, especially if they're due to obstructive processes, they follow their own rules. At this point, we think Amanda has pseudotumor cerebri. She has papilledema and positional headaches. She responded to Diamox at first, but then her headaches and vision changes came back in spite of medicine. We decide on doing passive second stage, or passive descent. And now Amanda's just dreadfully waiting for the spinal tap to make the final diagnosis and hopefully also treat her headaches. She's so anxious at this point that I give her a small dose of alprazolam to take before the spinal tap, and then I send her to this
1: doctor. My name is Alexander Moeller. I'm a neuro-oncologist here at Rhode Island Hospital.
0: Also, he's done
1: like a gazillion spinal taps. So she was quite nervous, um, so I talked with her for a while before before we actually got down to do the procedure. My anxiety was so high, so I had taken some Xanax before the spinal tap. The spinal tap itself goes well for Amanda. Yes, he was lovely.
0: Except there are a few unusual things that happened. The first is her opening pressure. Do you remember what the opening pressure was? I think it was eight. Yeah, it was like 10 or 8. 12, maybe. It was normal. After all that, the opening pressure is normal. Maybe the pressure had been going up and down, or maybe the alprazolam dropped the pressure. We actually never find out the answer to this mystery. Second. My vision
1: was better, 100% better. But third, the headache gets worse. But I was in a significant amount of pain. The worst headache I've ever had in my entire life. Um, I couldn't sit up without throwing up and I was in so much pain. Did you catch that? Amanda's headaches have switched patterns. Her headaches before were
0: worse lying down, but now her headaches only occur when she's sitting or standing. This is still a positional pattern, but it's a reverse position. Now Amanda has a spinal headache.
1: It was just a result of the you know, the small leakage from the spinal tap. You can think of low-pressure headache or spinal headache as kind of the opposite of pseudotumor
0: cerebri. The treatment for this headache type is fluids, caffeine, pain control, and sometimes a blood patch. And at this point, Amanda is admitted to Women and Infants Hospital for pain control, and she's just days away from delivering her baby. But just when she thinks she's reached the end of a rope, there's one more surprise. Before I tell you, let's summarize what we've learned so far. A patient comes in with headache who screens positive with the SNOOP acronym. If it's super acute, she gets a head CT. If it's weeks of symptoms, she gets a non-contrast MRI, A, and V. If imaging is negative and she has papilledema, she probably has pseudotumor and needs a spinal tap. An opening pressure over 25 centimeters of water would be diagnostic. Follow the visual field testing and you can use acetazolamide or Diamox to treat the condition. Around the time of labor and delivery, it's important to pay attention to whether your patient's having symptoms because pushing can be risky to the vision, although C-section can have risks of its own. Remember, there's this thing called passive second stage to minimize pushing. Make friends with your anesthesiologist because pain control is essential. Now, back to Amanda. The super organized planner, the color coder, she has one more surprise, and that is the baby is breech. So instead of that well-controlled vaginal delivery we were talking about, Amanda has to get a C-section.
1: It never crossed my mind that the decision to have a C-section would be out of my control. We had discussed whether or not I should have, you know, passive descent or have the C-section, and I always thought that that would be a choice that we would make. It never, and you know, I know that these things happen, but it never crossed my mind that he might be breached and it wouldn't be in my control.
0: (laughs) Amanda's doing really well, and her baby is doing fantastically. Her vision symptoms resolved, including the papilledema, and now she gets headaches from time to time, but they're no big deal. I hope Amanda's story illustrates how important it is to be systematic in the approach to secondary causes of headache. Check those boxes, color-code those binders. It's a little neurotic. It's, it's totally normal. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> i do the same thing. <laughs> and remember that intracranial pressure, both high and low, can have implications in pregnancy, in delivery, and with anesthesia. I hope you learned a lot today. Thanks to our experts, Dr. Naharika Mehta in the obstetrical medicine department at Women and Infants Hospital, and Dr. Erica Werner in the department of maternal fetal medicine at Women and Infants Hospital. Dr. Alexander Moeller in the neurology department and Dr. Petra Klinga in the neurosurgery department at Rhode Island Hospital. Music is by Tom Van Buskirk, production assistance by Megan Hall. Special thanks to Bob Levinger in the Lifespan Development Office and to Larry Warner and the Rhode Island Foundation for making this podcast possible.